The following audio message is from Neighborhood Church in Overland Park, Kansas. At Neighborhood Church, we seek to be a community that loves God and our neighbors together. If you would like to learn more about Neighborhood Church, please go to www.neighborhoodchurchop.com. Before we get into the passage today, I, just, I do want to do some, uh, um, some review of kind of where we're at. Um, Sometimes from week to week, especially if you miss a week, you're like, oh, now where's, where are we at in the scripture as well? Um, a few weeks ago, uh, we started Jesus' last week of life before the cross on Sunday, okay? He entered Jerusalem, uh, God's city of the king is one of the ways the psalmist talks about Jerusalem. And Jesus enter it, enters it on a, a colt, a, a baby donkey, and as he was riding on this donkey into the city, um, people were yelling to him, Hosanna, like Savior, like praising him, saying, you're the son of David, you're the Messiah. He accepted all those words. Um, and after that, as he walked into the city, he walked into the, the church, if you will, or the temple, the religious space. And then this happened in 2112. He entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus came to God's house, the king's house, the, the, uh, the place where God resided. And it was designed to be this display point for the whole world to see God. That was the hope. But the temple's purposes had, had been distorted, and it was being used to bring money to the Jews instead of worship to God. That's what was happening. So Jesus walked in and turned tables over. One of the writers talks about him making a whip. And they had set up this kind of store or this exchange market in the area for the Gentiles to worship, to sell their sacrifices and exchange money for the foreigners. But um, a couple weeks ago, as we've been talking about Jesus being in the temple, I meant to put some, some pictures of the temple in some slides, and I remembered to do that this week. So let's take a look at the temple. This is a drone footage from a couple thousand years ago. Um, um, you can see how massive it is. Of course, this is a recreation of, of what the temple looked like. Um, and see the, the open space there. It seems like a place for a nice flea market, right? Like a place you could go and, and instead of having a place for the foreigners to worship, you could just set up places there to exchange money at high rates and sell sacrifice so people don't have to bring their own, right? Another slide is another, another that was kind of looking southwest. This is kind of looking straight west. And you can see the wall there of Jerusalem. If you think about Nehemiah and Ezra, this idea of rebuilding the wall, Ezra rebuilding the temple. Um, this is not a small little church building on the corner <laughs> at all, is it? Did you have any idea how big the temple mount was? Like, that is massive. That is massive. So um, go to the next slide. This is today. This is what it looks like today in Jerusalem. Right? So you can still see the foundation, the mount there, and uh, the, the Muslims currently have uh, jurisdiction over it, so they have a mosque they've put there right where the Holy of Holies used to be is now a temple. And this little, this little open space you kind of see right here in the middle I'm pointing to, that is the, you know, the, the, the western wall 
as you, as you see the, the picture of the Jewish rabbis or men and women there praying, um, they have uh, just set up there with chairs and tables. People will have festivals there. But that's the place where the Jews get to go. This bottom corner, and then over here is where, um, of course, the Jews don't go. That's the temple. Next slide. How big is it? Well, here's a little block of our neighborhood. And, and pop up there how, how large it is. This little blue box will show us. It's good size, right? It's, it's a good size church building, right? So go to, the next, go, to the next, go to the next. So I thought maybe what if we wanted to do this? Let's just throw that up there. That's how big it would be. So um, some of your houses would have to be torn down, but it's 36 acres. That's 100 of our houses, 100 of our yards. Um, uh, we may be redesigning a little bit, you know. So if anybody wants to be on the building team, the committee, you can start working on those plans and give us a budget for what that would cost, right? But it's massive. It's massive. Like, this is a huge thing. Jesus walks into this area. Next slide. Jesus walks in here in his day and comes to his home, God's house. This tall place is where the Holy of Holies is. There's a curtain there. In this story, the curtain is still hung up, dividing mankind from God. Um, but as we continue through um, this, these stories of his last week, we'll find out what happens to that area. So on Sunday, as I mentioned, he went into the city, then he went to the temple, made a little Reformation moment, and now it's Monday, right? It's Monday, and he curses a fig tree. We talked about this last week. He saw a fig tree with leaves on it. When a fig tree has leaves, it's supposed to have fruit, but it did not. Many of us talked about that in our uh, neighborhood group this last week. It was a fruitless tree, and Jesus curses it. And once again, we see Jesus portraying another example of Jesus preparing his followers from the Old Covenant into a new covenant. The old covenant needed to be revitalized through final fulfillment. And there's just days awaiting this. The Jewish system in its current form with the self-righteous priests and Pharisees and scribes and lawyers and other leaders was broken. The system needed new leadership. Those that are currently running the show, running the religious system, there needed to be change. There was, there was a lot of misleading, to say the least. So it's Monday. It's the second day, and he's on his way back to the temple. After he passes the fig tree and does that lesson, he arrives to the temple, and of course there's the leaders there, seeing Jesus, the one that just made a ruckus the day before. They'd start talking to him, and Jesus tells them about the future Reformation needed. <laughs> And he starts telling them some parables. And last week we talked about one of those parables where Jesus talked about two sons. One son said, yes, I will go into the vineyard of this father who said go to work. And one son said yes, but never went to work. And another son said no, but finally did. And we had a lesson there about Jesus talking about those that would enter the kingdom. The ones who not only just say yes with their mouth, but the ones that have faith and do the work. And that brings us to the second parable that he tells the priests. So all that just to set up, 
We're about to read our passage today. This is Matthew 21, 33 through 46. Here, another parable. This is Jesus talking. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will, re they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He's asking that to the priests. And the priests say to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, <clears throat> they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. My aim this morning for all of us is that we would feel God's loving patience alongside God's judgment. These are both true of God and foundations of his character. So here's our three points for today. If you're taking notes, number one, God is lovingly patient. Point two, God is a righteous judge. And three, Jesus was judged so we can love. So let's look at this parable together real quick. Matthew 21, 33 says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. So what's going on here? Well, God, in this parable, is the master. And then look who did the work, right? In this parable, the master does all this work. He built a fruit-producing system and then put some tenants there to care for it. Some, some leaders, some kings, if you, some priests, some Pharisees in charge of that system. And then the master, God, he sent some servants to go get the fruit from the vineyard. Or for the parable's analogy, he sent some prophets, right? He sent some leaders, some judges to go to Israel and get the fruits. You see, God's looking for worship. God is looking for love for him and love for others. And when he sent these prophets 
and these judges there, he was hoping that this fruit would come back to him. But what did the tenants do? Those that were keeping, you know, keeping leadership over this vineyard or over this religious system that we find in the Old Testament. How were these people caring for Israel, God's people? Well, we really don't know in the parable because what happens when the servants come? They get beaten up. We don't even know. We just know the type of people that are running the system are the type of people that beat up the servants that have come to check out how things are going. That's what we're learning about it. And how did God respond? Right? How does God respond when he sends servants to go check on how things are going and the tenants kill them, the leaders kill the prophets and the judges, how does God respond? Well, he gives them another chance, doesn't he? More prophets are sent. So point number one is God is lovingly patient. He doesn't send in the army to bomb the vineyard to get rid of the tenants. He says, oh, I'll send some more. If I send more, maybe they'll respond correctly. The Old Testament is the story of God's love and patience on repeat. It's this repetition of God being lovingly patient over and over and over again. He keeps his contract to his tenants. His covenant with Israel is never broken. He shows discipline out of love, but story after story in the Old Testament, God cares for his rebellious children. Isn't that good news for us that are following this God? God cares for rebellious children. And Jesus, the pinnacle of God's love, is then sent, right? Matthew 21, 37. Finally, he sent his own son to them thinking they'll respect my son. Maybe not my servants, but my son, my heir. But the tenants saw the son and said, hey, this is a chance for us to have a win, an economic advantage. And God sent Jesus, as we know the story more fully, to display to the world how far mankind had actually ran from God's plan. Have you thought of that in this parable? How messed up has mankind gotten? It's like the tenants who keep receiving the, the servants of the master, and they just keep killing him, and find the master sends his son, the heir, and we say, ooh, let's capitalize on this. That is humanity, which we are a part of. But how much love and patience does it take for a God to do this? So the tenants killed the servants, and then more servants, and finally the master's son. And Jesus now stops kind of telling the story for a second. And he turns. And he turns to these priests and these Pharisees. 
And he says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do? Jesus is trying to teach the leaders something about themselves. Just telling them as we've gone through 21 chapters, you say, hey guys, you're wrong. You're putting a yoke that's too much on the people. You should stop doing that. You're not following God. That is not working. He's using some parables now to try to help them better understand what is actually happening in their system. And he uses the story. It doesn't use God's name or the priests. It just talks about the basic understanding of justice and judgment. Matthew 21, 41. They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Point number two, God is a righteous judge. The unrighteous sinful man here can even see that judgment must take place. Guys, we have a God who must rightly deal with those that reject Jesus. It's wrong to reject Jesus. It's sin to reject Jesus. When I talk to people about what it means to be a Christian or salvation or church, and they respond with, I'm kind of a Christian. Like, in my mind, it just doesn't fit. Either you receive Jesus or you reject Jesus. There is a major point about theology that Jesus is teaching here. And when you reject Jesus, there is correct, right judgment that must happen. Even we get this. Even people who kill the servants get this. Even the people who killed Jesus get this. There must be justice. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The very son of the master was sent. He was rejected by his own people. Jesus, to these Pharisees, was useless. He was not a stone needed to build their religious system. This stone that Jesus was, was actually cast aside like a worthless rock compared to the system that the Pharisees we're living in. And Jesus says, this stone that you seem, it seems to be worthless to you, is actually going to be the cornerstone. And most of us don't build buildings like we just saw on the screen. Like big stone structures with a big stone solid foundation. This is what a cornerstone is. It's the first stone set in construction of masonry, masonry foundation, it's important since all the other stones will be set in reference to this stone. 
thus determining the position of the entire structure. Do you guys see the contrast that Jesus is teaching here? The very stone that you thought was worthless has become the very stone that the entire new system is going to be built upon. This stone determines what the structure will look like. There's a first stone in any building. And maybe for many of us, we're like, tiles kind of like that. <laughs> that first tile, when you stick it in there, you're like, ah, I hope it's right. You guys know this. Think about building a temple the size of our neighborhood. That's an important stone. What about building a temple of the entire world of humanity? Guys, there's not going to be another temple that looks like the temple that we saw in that picture. Because you know what the temple looks like now? Look around. Look around. Seriously, like, look around. You may not even be here today. Like, this is the temple, right? This is the new temple. It looks like a bunch of lighthouses throughout our neighborhoods. That's what the new temple looks like. It's the new covenant. And what's it built upon? Well, each individual person has to get next to the cornerstone, which is Jesus. And you know, Jesus to many people is the stone that is worthless. They, they have no bearing on their lives based on that worthless rock that's in a pile of a, a bunch of other junk that they've seen in this world. But what if Jesus, this stone that's in a big pile of trash, is actually the, key, the keystone, if I can use that correctly, the main stone, the cornerstone for everything that the New Covenant Church is built around. The physical God-man is being rejected by many. And the one who rejects, 2143, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And this is judgment. Jesus is saying, your rejection results in your removal. So God is a righteous judge. But here we see the good news from the very mouths of the priests. 2141. The master will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And from the mouth of Jesus, 2143, the kingdom of God will be given to a people producing its fruits. So point number three this morning as we wrap up. Jesus was judged so we can love. The kingdom has been given to those who receive Jesus, and as we talked about last week, and produce the fruit of the kingdom of God. The fruit of the kingdom of God is love, joy, peace, patience. Our salvation is because Jesus was rejected. So we are not rejected. He died to pay for the very sin that put him on the cross. Your sin and my sin. He was judged. So we now can love freely with no strings attached. Jesus has been rejected. 
so God can accept us. I want to end this morning with a paragraph from Romans. I try to normally stay in the text, but as I studied this this week, this passage kept coming up. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and it's got a lot of real churchy words in it. So I'm going to read slowly, but for some of the room, you're going to see some of the connections. And for others, this might be like, wow, that was a lot of churchy words. But my hope is that you're introduced to Paul's writings. We will, be, we will be studying some of more of Paul's writings. You will understand some of these concepts that as we read these parables, all these things start fitting together because it's true. It's one grand story of God's redemption for humanity. And this is how Paul explains it from Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his forbearance, his patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why do I end with this text? Because this morning I talked about feeling the loving patience of God with God's righteous judgment. They seem like they're in contrast. They seem like they're broken. But together, they're a beautiful picture of God's redemption. You see, in the Old Testament, you know, as Paul's writing in the first century, he's like, God passed over all these sins of humanity, it seems like. He kept sending more servants. He kept doing that. He, he had patience. That's not right. Why did he keep sending people? And then he sent his son, Jesus? That's not right. And they killed him? That is wrong. Who are you, God? As we spend a lifetime trying to understand this paragraph, God is perfectly just and perfectly patient, has patience, only because of one thing. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. If you remove that, none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. But because he is the one who paid the sacrifice, it's correct. Because God can do unto himself what he wants to do. He chose to die for us and our sins. And if you're in the room and you're not a Christian yet, he's patient with you. You're still alive. You're actually in a church service hearing the gospel. And if you're a believer and you begin to think through your past, you think through what you did yesterday, oh God, please be patient with me. He is. Jesus Christ has died for all the sin that has done, that is doing, and that will do. Amen? That is glorious. And that is love, and that is justice. Love that he sent 
Jesus to be judged for us. Let's end with a few questions. Have you rejected Jesus as the Son of God? What is keeping you from receiving him as your Lord and Savior? Ponder that today during communion. Are you living your life, placing your priorities next to Jesus' cornerstone or your own desires? Maybe there's something, if you put next to the life of Jesus that you're currently involved in, you're like, yeah, that's not lined up. That's like 90 degrees. That's, that's way off uh, set. What areas of your life are not aligned with Jesus' desires? Thirdly, where are you producing the fruit of love for the kingdom of God? How are you blessing others where you live work and play. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your scriptures. I thank you that you continue to remind us of your patience, but also your judgment. May we not rely on our works, but may we have faith in you, Jesus, in your work, and may we live this life for your glory, producing fruit of love, Worship to you and love for others. We ask all this in your name. Amen.